Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21, hear now the word of the Lord. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will the vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the, in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my house? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. 
I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day eighty-five persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. This is the word of the Lord. We've been seeing how the life of David prefigures the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. And we need to see that, that King Jesus is the Lord's anointed. He is the Mashiach, Messiah. And that as we look at David, we see that as we saw last time, loving David, protecting David, making a covenant with David was really all about loving Jesus, delighting in Jesus, protecting Jesus in the sense of defending and maintaining his kingdom rather than seeking our own kingdoms. If, if that's what Jonathan has done, that Jonathan doesn't care about his kingdom. Jonathan wants to see the kingdom of God. And so because he wants to see the kingdom of God, he loves David and wants David to be king. Now, Saul is not happy about this. But if David signifies our Lord Jesus, then we should see that as we are made partakers in Christ, then we are also called to imitate him. And as all of this has happened to David, in order to drive him out into the wilderness, so also we are called out into the wilderness to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. But even as we do this, we are promised the same protection as Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You may have complete confidence that the Lord will protect and guard you from all evil, Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not even death. When we fear man, we do not fear God. When we fear God, we do not fear man. Now, the adventures of David uh, fit into a fairly neat pattern. 
after the grand introduction in his conquest over Goliath, we've seen in the last three chapters how Saul's family, and indeed all Israel, follow David. It is fascinating how Saul is the one father in all of 1 Samuel who produces faithful children. You'd think. Eli, not so much. Samuel, not so much. David, eh, not so much. So these three relatively faithful men don't have faithful kids. The most faithless man in the book has faithful kids. Part of the lesson God is teaching his people is that holiness and righteousness are not inherited traits. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't just happen because you grow up in a Christian family. You have to say, yes, I believe those promises that were sealed to me in my baptism. So that's part one that we've seen in the sort of the adventures of David. Tonight, we start into the second part of the adventures of David, the Messiah in hiding, in which David flees to Ahimelech the priest, and then to Achish, the Philistine king of Gath, and then to the cave of Adullam, to Moab, and to the forests of Hereth. And these three flights are paralleled in chapters 22 and 23 by three betrayals. The betrayal of the priests by Doeg, the warning from God that the men of Calah will betray David, and then the betrayal by the Ziphites. And we'll look at the, the end part of that next time. And then the following section, part three of the adventures of David in chapters 24 to 26, will focus on the two times that David spares Saul's life, sandwiched around the death of Samuel and the lengthy narrative of how David marries Abigail. And then the final section of 1 Samuel will then deal with David among the Philistines and Saul among the dead in more ways than one. But tonight is all about the Messiah in hiding. The book of Samuel makes frequent reference to the Lord's anointed, the Messiah of Yahweh. And David often uses it to refer to Saul, as we'll see in future weeks. But it has an unmistakable connection to David, because David is also the Lord's anointed. He is the Messiah in hiding. Once you've seen this, you can't help but see all the parallels to Jesus as he teaches and makes disciples in Galilee. What's David doing in our story? He's making disciples. It's, he, he doesn't wind up with the cream of the crop following him. He has the riffraff. But what's he doing? He's making disciples. He's hiding in the wilderness, gathering followers as he awaits God's timing. My hour has not yet come. That's quoting Jesus, but it's what David's living. Jesus recapitulates the history of Israel. Since Israel has failed... God has now anointed David to be the king who will succeed where Israel fails. So it's not surprising to see David himself recapitulating the history of Israel. David must wander in the wilderness as Israel had done, as Jesus will do, and wait for the Lord's appointed time. Now, the new feature is the feature of betrayal. Uh, Now, there's... There's a sense in which you can see this happening even in Israel's wandering in the wilderness. But David is not only supposed to succeed where Israel failed, he is also to lead Israel back to the right way. And not surprisingly, not all Israel will be entirely eager to follow. But the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, has no place to lay his head. And worse, he will be betrayed even by those whom he has delivered from their enemies. Well, 
things start out well. Uh, David has left Jonathan in the field, and now he goes to Nob, where Ahimelech the priest lives, and David's got a plan, and things start off, hey, it's going the right way. He tells Ahimelech he's on a secret mission from Saul. Well, okay, there's a couple questions that arise here. Pretty plainly, David deceives Ahimelech. The text does not comment on the wisdom or folly of these sorts of actions, but our text does give us ways of evaluating how to think about these things. I mean, when Jonathan deceived his father in the last chapter to protect David from death, the result was life and blessing. Here, David's deceit of Ahimelech seems much less appropriate. I mean, it sounds like David's trying to protect Ahimelech from complicity in his flight. But it doesn't work. And I mean, David admits at the end of the story, yeah, when I saw Doeg there, I knew there was going to be trouble. Right, so why did you do it? At the end of the story, David seems to acknowledge this was a bad idea. Because Ahimelech doesn't know what's really going on, he winds up walking blind into a trap. Not a good idea. What's the difference between what David does or what Jonathan did with his father and what David does with Ahimelech? Jonathan's father, Saul, is trying to kill someone. And so when Jonathan deceives him, he's protecting his father from committing murder. It's okay to protect your father from committing murder. What's David doing? David's protecting himself. He's not protecting Ahimelech at all. Ahimelech isn't trying to kill anybody. Ahimelech is an honest, godly man. He should tell Ahimelech. Okay, Ahimelech, I got trouble. That way Ahimelech knows what he's doing and can decide, do I want to help David or not? So it's just, But I think our text actually points us, when you look at how the text tells the story, our text points us to see there's a difference in these two. Now, the other... The other thing that happens here is that Ahimelech gives the bread of the presence to David. Now, one might say, Ahimelech's the grandson of Phineas, the worthless son of Eli, so we really shouldn't expect great fidelity to the law from him. But what's going on here? David asks for bread. Ahimelech says the only bread available is the holy bread of the presence, and he offers it to David on condition that the men have kept themselves from women. As we saw this morning, according to Leviticus, any sexual intercourse rendered a man unclean until sundown. But when David then refers to their vessels, he's using a term that would ordinarily refer to their equipment, the sort of things you'd take on a journey or expedition. Uh, Hebrew in this respect is a lot like English. We use euphemisms to speak of people's equipment. But why does Ahimelech offer the holy bread to David? Well, earlier this year we went through the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9 is very clear. The bread is for Aaron and his sons to eat. Leviticus 24, verse 9 says, It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. In other words, it was not lawful for David to eat this bread. And yet, Jesus will say in Matthew 12, that Ahimelech did what was right, 
And David was not guilty of profaning the holy bread. In Matthew 12, verse 3, after the Pharisees have accused his disciples of doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath by plucking grain on the Sabbath, Jesus says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So Jesus is saying, it was not lawful for David to eat the bread of the presence. That's not the same thing as saying, therefore it was sinful. Do you understand the difference? To say something is not lawful does not mean that it's sinful. It just means that it's not according to the law. Jesus' point in Matthew 12 is found in his conclusion when he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, my disciples are guiltless when they do what is not lawful in taking the grain, just like David was doing something that was not lawful, but David and Ahimelech were guiltless. What does it mean? Jesus means that the law was never intended as an exhaustive rule. When it says that, when it says that this, the bread of the presence is for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in a holy place, what happens if the priests have visitors and they are showing hospitality? Would it, 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 the, Leviticus never says, and nobody else can ever eat it under any circumstances. The law says, Here's, this, this is for the priests and their, son, and their sons. They shall eat it in a holy place. What happens when there is an extraordinary situation? Now, it may be, and it sounds from what Ahimelech says, that they ordinarily would have ordinary bread for guests, But in this emergency situation that presents itself, Ahimelech acts with mercy. Now, the other example that Jesus uses in Matthew 12 is, he says that the priests profane the Sabbath by doing their ordinary work and are guiltless. Even as the work of worship is proper activity for the Sabbath, so also nourishing your guests, and particularly here, it's the Lord's anointed we're talking about after all, but it's the proper function of the holy bread. If we are so focused on following rules that we lose sight of mercy, then we have lost sight of the purpose of the law. Now, at this point, we hear that Doeg the Edomite was present, uh, and then he's dropped from the story. There are three things said about Doeg. First, he is an Edomite. In other words, from the descendants of Esau. Remember that David's great-grandmother is a Moabite. Moabite, Edomite. That's important. He is the chief of Saul's herdsmen. David had been a shepherd. And he was detained before the Lord, uh, doubtless for some sort of uncleanness. That's usually why somebody gets detained before the Lord. Whereas David professes to be holy. So just keep Doeg in mind. He'll come back. But rather than go straight to the the sequel of the story, first we must establish David's flight pattern. Uh, And he says to Ahimelech, "Uh, do you have a spear or a sword here? I mean, David would undoubtedly know the sword of Goliath was here. But he asks, do you happen to have a spear or a sword? And 
he's offered the sword of Goliath, and David says, ah, yes, I'll take that one. So with the sword of Goliath, David flees to Achish, the king of Gath, Goliath's hometown. You might think David's a little nuts for this. Goliath's killer now comes to Goliath's home with Goliath's sword, no less. This may not appear to be one of David's more brilliant moves. Now, we're not told why, but in verse 14, Achish blames his servants for bringing David to him. What's going on here? Well, listen to what the, the servants of Achish say to him. Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. It all depends on what tone of voice you use when you read those words. We often read it as, "Ah, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not? As though this is like, oh, oh, this is... I think that's reading it wrong. Hey, king, Akish, isn't this David the king of the land? Don't the Israelites love David more than Saul? This could be the moment we've been waiting for. If we could get David on our side, if we got, hey, the tens of thousands follow David to the thousands of Saul. If David would be the one who, we could make an alliance with, and hey, do you hear the rumor? Somebody told us that he's been anointed to the next king. There's a conflict between, between Saul and David. If we line up with David, if we make an alliance with David, we could have a pro-Philistine king on the throne of Israel. When you read this as, ooh, this is David who killed our champion. We, uh, what's he doing? I mean, why would David even come here if he knows this is a place where they're trying to kill him? He's fleeing from somebody who's trying to kill him. And then you remember what Goliath had said. If you kill me, we will be your servants. And then you remember that later on in David's life, there are going to be lots and lots of Gittites in his entourage. And maybe, just maybe, as we saw in the story of David and Goliath, maybe there were those among the Philistines, especially from Gath, who were honorable men, who said, our champion said it. So David, David's, we follow David. That's what he said we should do. Well, it sure looks like that's what's happening. So the Gittites are not hostile to David. They are seeking an alliance. And that scares David more than hostility. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Because David does not wish to ally with the Philistines. He came here for refuge. And he thinks of it, oh, he thinks this will be a safe place for him to take refuge. The problem is, they want him to fight against the Lord's anointed. So what do you do when you realize that your bright idea has got you into trouble? Act like a madman. So he changes his behavior before them, pretends to be insane. He makes marks on the doors of the gate. Sounds like he's like he's chewing on the gate and the spittle's running down his beard. And Akish is like, are you, what's going on? You bring me a madman. This guy is not going to be any use to us. We sang Psalm 34 earlier. His praise shall forever be in my mouth. That's chewing on the, the gate. May his praise be in my mouth even when I'm acting like a madman. David may have delivered the performance of a lifetime when he persuaded Akish to declare him insane, but David recognizes that it was God who delivered him. You see here a a clear statement of how 
divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together. If, after all, if David had been sitting around saying, well, I suppose God will save me one of these days, he'd be dead by now. David needs to be quick-minded, but also humble-hearted. And the same is true for us, as when we face situations that, no, wait upon the Lord. Yeah, by all means, wait upon the Lord. But then, when it's time, sort of like, think about when, when, when Moses says to Israel, stand still and see the salvation of your God. Well, when the, the Red Sea parts, what are you supposed to do? Stand still and wait for the salvation of your God? No, when the Red Sea parts, start walking. That's the time to move. Now, it's not David's job to find allies and overthrow Saul. David's job is to deny himself, take up his cross, and, well, follow Jesus in advance. Now, Psalm 34 is also explicitly a psalm of the cross. Psalm 34, verse 20, is quoted by John in John 19:36. He guards all his bones... Not one of them is broken. Now, this is not my imagination that's connecting the sufferings of David with the sufferings of Jesus. John saw it first. John saw that what David experienced at Gath prefigures the cross. Because before all of this was God's imagination as he laid out the history of redemption. But now is not the time for the crowds to say, crucify him. And so the Messiah is brought through trial and tribulation out of the hands of his enemies. And David escapes. David, like the Ark of the Covenant before him, has passed through Gath in triumph. The Ark of the Covenant had come through Gath. And when God had struck down the gods of the Philistines and and when God himself went before his people back at the beginning of the book of Samuel. And now David, who is the Lord's anointed, is following the path of the ark. In Israel's history, in the story of the book of Samuel, this story will take multiple chapters to work its way through. It all comes together in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both the ark of the covenant and the Lord's anointed in one person. But... The Ark of the Covenant had been captured and sent to Gath, where it destroyed the Philistines. Now David, the slayer of Gath's mighty warrior, has passed through Gath unscathed as well. But what we need to remember from this is that just as David says, no, no, kingdom of God cannot be prostituted to the the Philistines' desires, so also you cannot prostitute the kingdom of God to the agendas of the nations. The gospel of the kingdom cannot be made to serve some other cause. Rather, all other causes, all other agendas, need to bow the knee to King Jesus. You see, there will be lots of Gittites in David's entourage, but they will be following David, not David following the Philistines. And you start to see Knees bowing to the king in chapter 22. David departs and escapes to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Adullam is in Judah, not far from Bethlehem, and an area that is pocked with caves. And here at the cave of Adullam, David is joined by his father's house. No doubt they're afraid of what Saul will do to them if they don't. 
along with those who are in distress, everyone who's in debt, those who are bitter in soul. Now, sometimes people use this, ah, see how many people were upset with Saul? 400? Not a huge number. And the text nowhere blames Saul for their misfortune. But older commentators often tried to demonstrate that these 400 men were, were respectable and not a band of brigands. But I'm inclined to point out that these are the down and out. Who did Jesus call to himself? Tax collectors and sinners. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Uh, For that matter, recent events all over the world have perhaps reminded us that what the ruling elites call brigands may well be decent folk who have been driven to despair. It's worth also noting that this group includes David's family, one of the leading families of Bethlehem, along with the prophet Gad, and about this time, the lone surviving priest, Abiathar, also joins them. So it's not merely the riffraff who fled to David, but God's kingdom has place for the riffraff. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. I said earlier it matters that Doeg was an Edomite. David goes to Mizpah of Moab and asks the king of Moab to shelter his parents till I know what God will do for me. Remember that David's great-grandmother was a Moabitess named Ruth. In other words, Ruth was Jesse's grandmother. Just as Saul's story connects to his great-great-grandmother's city of Jabesh-Gilead, David's story connects to Moab. Think back to Elimelech and Naomi fleeing from Bethlehem because of famine. In the kind providence of God, even their fearfulness and straying was woven back into the tapestry of salvation history. Little did Naomi know that her grandson Jesse would find refuge in Moab because of that connection. We rarely get to know how our decisions affect future generations. Naomi died long before this story begins. She never knew. But when we say that God works all things together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose, it's not just saying, oh, in the next five months. It could be a hundred years from now, long after you're dead, and you had no idea. When does Naomi ever get to find out? Here's why all this misery happened to me. I mean, sure, at the end of her life, Ruth finds a husband, has a child. Yay! But Naomi never finds out. At the end of her life, she dies. Okay, Lord, that was strange. And now, a hundred years later, even your foolishness, even your fearfulness can be used by God. But also, How did it get used by God? Remember Naomi's repentance too. If Naomi never comes back from Moab, this story never happens. Remember to repent. Don't just say, oh, God can use it, so who cares? (laughs) Yes, God can use it, but not who cares. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, The prophet Gad warns David not to remain in the stronghold, and so David departs and goes to the forest of Hereth, probably the region around the caves of Adullam. 
David is looking for a place where he can be still and wait upon the Lord. And here in central Judah, he has the best chance to avoid both Saul and the Philistines. You know, the Philistines want to co-opt him for their agenda. Saul wants to destroy him. So maybe I can just find a quiet corner to hide out in. As long as, as, long as no one rats me out. Well, there's a lot of rats in Messiah's day. First, we have the murderous Doeg the Edomite. He had been in Nob on the day David came there, detained before the Lord. No doubt he had been unclean in some way. And when Saul hears that the young upstart is in the forest of Hereth gathering a band of malcontents, he does what any decent king would do, crush the rebellion before it gets too big. He starts by berating his servants. We saw last time how he was berating his son and his wife. And now he berates his servants, those of the tribe of Benjamin. Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as at this day. You can see what Saul's thinking. Saul thinks that David is preparing an assault to try to take the throne. But Saul's servants see more clearly than the king. They have no answer. No one except Doeg, the Edomite. A foreigner, a son of the rejected Esau, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated, takes the side of the rejected king, Saul. And when Doeg tells Saul what the priests had done for David, Saul summons the priests and demands an explanation for this conspiracy against him. Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? Ahimelech replies, honestly, there's no conspiracy, O king. He was, he's your son-in-law, he's your general, he's your captain. Of course I've inquired of the Lord for him. What, what's going on here? We can understand, perhaps, why David deceived Ahimelech. If he had spoken honestly to Ahimelech, Ahimelech would have been put into the awkward position of having to choose between David and Saul. So in a sense, you could say David was trying to protect him, but hmm, you can't protect somebody by lying to them. Convinced that everyone is against him, Saul refuses to believe Ahimelech, and he orders his guard to kill the priests. They're good Israelites. Whatever faults they may have, they know better than to strike down the Lord's priests. So Saul says to Doeg, you do it. And so Doeg struck down 85 priests, those who wore the ephod, slaughters the whole city of Nob, man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep. Remember where Saul went wrong? He failed to devote the Amalekites to destruction. And now... He devotes the priests of Yahweh to destruction. And while this is properly a horrible crime, it brings to pass what the Lord had said to Eli, that his household would be cut off. The rejected king renders judgment upon the rejected priest by the hand of the rejected Edomite, Doeg. All these come together in bringing judgment upon each other. 
And so the last heir of Eli, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, flees to David. And David acknowledges that he was indeed the occasion of the death of Ahimelech's house. There's a difference between causing trouble and being the occasion of trouble. David did not cause the death of the priests. He is not guilty of their death. And yet he recognizes that his visit and the way he handled it was the occasion for Doeg and Saul to destroy the priests. Perhaps if he had been truthful with Ahimelech, the priests would have been more careful. If you're going to involve someone in a dangerous plan of yours, it's prudent to inform them so that they can be aware of the risks they're taking. But at any rate, here now, David takes upon himself the obligation of protecting the last priest of the house of Eli. He recognizes, yeah, he who is after you is after me too. I'll protect you. You'll be safe here. And so there's a way in which you now have the Lord's anointed in exile together with the Lord's priest in exile. That this is where the story is there, you might say, the, the true Israel is now back out in the wilderness as in the days of Moab, Moses, wandering in the wilderness, waiting upon the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if we are paying attention to what God is showing us in David, and then far more clearly in our Lord Jesus, we should be fearless in our following of him. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? If our Lord brought Jesus through suffering to glory and has now made us partakers with Jesus, then why should cross or trial grieve me? What, when, when the troubles of life come, what am I afraid of? Our Lord was brought through suffering just as David was brought through suffering. And even so we will be brought through suffering as we come to God in Jesus. That's, that's just the part of the story that we sometimes forget, that, that the way we are conformed to the likeness of Christ is by conformity to his sufferings that we might also be conformed to his resurrection likeness. Both parts are essential. And that's where we get to see here David in the wilderness trusting God that God will do what he has promised. And that it's not David's job to take down Saul. It's David's job to trust in the Lord with all his heart and lean not on his own understanding, but in all his ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Almighty God, help us, because we are too quick to seek our own kingdoms. We are too quick to think that you're too slow in doing what you've said you'll do. But if, as you have told us, uh, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day, we acknowledge, Lord, that it hasn't been a thousand years yet in our lives. And, well, we are not likely to see that long. So help us to trust you, to believe you, to have confidence that you will do what you've promised. And help us, Lord, to lament in the midst of these afflictions. Help us to lament as, as David did, as he lamented the destruction of the priests in the mighty man, Doeg, who boasts of his evil. Lord, help us to lament and help us to trust you, to fear you, to believe you, 
that as we walk before you, that you would give us wisdom and grace to walk through the trials of this life, to walk through the afflictions of this age with confidence. Because you will continue your good work in us and you will bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would have mercy upon your people throughout all the nations. And we pray tonight especially for our brothers and sisters in Sierra Leone who have who are enduring, apparently, an attempted coup. And we, we ask that you would have mercy, especially on Ibrahim's uh, family and friends, that you would protect them, especially his brother who serves as a police officer. Have mercy, O Lord, and protect him from harm. Grant that in the midst of all the, the trials and afflictions that afflict the nations, that your, your good spirit would, would go forth, that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it that those who hear your word would believe and would be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and would follow Jesus. And as we go to our rest now this night, we pray that you would grant to us your peace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.